Turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guide to John chapter 9. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John, examining how John presents to us the notion that God is present. He's present in the midst of his people at the writing of John, but also that John holds out for his readers that God continues to be present in unique and real ways to his people. And if you are able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. In the interest of time, I'm going to read verses nine through uh, uh, verses one through twelve, and fill you in a little bit on the story, and then pick up in verse twenty-four. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Jesus answered, "It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him." We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, He spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So He went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen Him therefore uh, before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. And so the healing causes a hubbub. Uh, the man is invited in front of the Pharisees who question him and fall into debate be- between those who believe that someone couldn't do a miracle like this unless he was from God and those who say he can't be from God because he did it on the Sabbath and is working on the Sabbath. The rulers of the synagogue call in the parents who say, listen, this is our son. He was born blind. How he's healed, we don't know. Ask him yourself. He's of age. They're afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. We resume in verse 24 where they have again called the blind man who has been healed into their presence. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. 
But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Sometimes uh, we believe that we know exactly what's going on. Sometimes we have things figured out, or think we do, and sometimes we couldn't be more wrong. Julian Barnes is the author of a, a wonderful little novel called The Sense of an Ending. And in that story, the main character, Tony Webster, late in life is forced to revisit something that happened earlier in his life. And as he goes to revisit that event that occurred earlier, he thinks that he has it very straight in his mind. He thinks that he remembers the major details, who was responsible, who indeed is guilty. And yet it's through processing this event and coming into the characters of that event from years previous that he's given a letter that he wrote in his own hand at the time. And the letter brings his world crashing down because the letter reveals to him that he has remembered the entire thing wrongly. He's shaped it over time. And the character says this, How often do we tell our own life story? How often do we adjust, embellish, make sly cuts? And the longer life goes on, the fewer are those around to challenge our account, to remind us that our life is not our life, merely the story we have told about our life, told to others, but mainly to ourselves. Our passage today is about the triumph of light over darkness. This is what John is holding out. And part of wrestling with this passage is reminding ourselves that we indeed are born into darkness. Part of us exists still ongoingly in darkness, and we do not see as clearly as we might like to pretend. The danger is even that we might be living in darkness, but convince ourselves or persuade ourselves that we see okay. Imagine at the outset just the danger of living in darkness, right? You're going to bump into things. You're not going to know the proper direction. It's going to be a challenge. But now imagine that if you lived in darkness but thought you could see. You run around, you think you've got things under control, the damage is going to be much greater both to you and to others. It raises the question, it points up the danger of thinking that we see when we don't see, and it begs the question of how we come to see and what it means to see. And so to look at John 9, I'd like to consider first that you're born in darkness, secondly, deciding who sees, and, and thirdly, living in the light. Number one, you're born in darkness. Number two, deciding who sees. And number three, living in the light. So number one, you are born in darkness. In verse one, our passage tells us that the man was born uh, blind. He hasn't spent a day of his life that he has seen. And it raises a certain question, a certain presumption that's operating in the course of the story. If you look at verse two, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. See, the man suffers as a res- uh, suffers blindness, and it's presumed by the people that that suffering is the result of some sin that has occurred. If this person is suffering from birth. There must be sin involved. Either his parents sinned or he sinned. Can you clarify the situation, Jesus? Isn't that an interesting presumption? Where does it come from? Why are the Jews in the story thinking automatically that because this person is blind, 
there's sin involved, and the blindness is a result of the sin. Well, it's not an unusual way to think, and really it's an effort at theodicy. It's an effort at wrestling with how to understand evil in the world, especially when we believe in a certain kind of character of God. Think for a moment. If I believe that God is good and all-powerful and fair, if I have that presumption and I come into contact then with something that I can't understand, I can't understand how someone would be born in blindness if God is good and all-powerful and fair, then I must come up with a reason to explain his blindness to preserve what I believe about God. And so, oh, well, it must be something that has to do with him or his parents, that there's sin involved as a result that results in this blindness. It's a presumption often that we share, frankly. Now, often as something bad in your life happened and you have thought to yourself, huh, I wonder what I've done to experience what's happening in my life. You presume that it's a direct consequence of something that you've done. Or when you see someone else suffering and you think perhaps at some level there's something that they have done. And in fact, that isn't the case at all. And if you think about it for a minute, that theology might work for a little while, seeing, oh, this person's blind. It must be something that they have done or his parents have done. That works okay until you, you're the one who's blind. Or you're the one that's suffering or someone close to you is suffering and you don't believe that there's anything particular that they've done and you just see the suffering and then it's harder to reconcile. Then it becomes reminiscent of the book of Job. It says, Job goes through the entire book saying, I don't deserve this. I haven't done anything that would cause God to act in this way against me. I can't explain it. Even those friends attempt to and say, you must have done something. Otherwise, all this badness would not befall you. In the end, God says, I am who I am, and I do as I please, and you can all stop asking questions. That's what we see here in a way, uh, where Jesus will go. But first, I want you to see that what has happened is the people who follow God, who call upon Him as their God, have developed a system to help them understand God's actions in the world. Right? And we, we struggle with seeing suffering in the world and hardship and things. God is loving and good and all-powerful. If this is all true, then how can the suffering be true? We have trouble reconciling that, no doubt. But in their effort to reconcile those two things that are difficult to put together, they came up with a system that didn't really work. It didn't explain God. It made life somewhat easier for them but it didn't help them to understand who God truly was or how he was working in this world. They said, it must be the result of sin on his parents' parts or on his part. That's our system. That explains why the blindness is happening. It's a little bit, uh, it reminded me of Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. You may not see that right at first, but it's Tommy Lee Jones is chasing Harrison Ford, right? He's escaped an escaped convict. And Tommy Lee Jones, for the first significant portion of the movie, operates with the conception he's been convicted by the criminal justice system. He's guilty. And even when Harrison Ford uh, protests his innocence, Harrison Ford will utter the line several times uh, in different situations, I don't care. In other words, it's easier for Ford to operate with a system that says, if he's convicted by the criminal justice system, he must be guilty, and it's my job to bring him to justice. 
If I humor the idea that he's not guilty, that makes things more difficult to me, for me. It makes my life far more complicated. So for the first part of the movie, until there's overwhelming evidence, he simply says, I don't care. It's not my job to care. It's my job to catch you. And so ultimately he has to say, oh, my system doesn't really work here because you actually are innocent. The evidence is overwhelming. But Ford and his, uh, Tommy Lee Jones and his role developed a system which made it easier for him to engage the world and to do what was required for him. And this is what we see amongst the Jews in this passage. They develop a system to explain difficult things that makes them, it makes it easier to interact with the world. The problem is it doesn't have, actually have to do anything with revelation and it, it facilitates a darkness in which they exist. Because it isn't actually, it isn't actually truth. You see, Jesus comes on the scene and in verse three, he denies that it has anything to do with the sin of the man or the parents. Instead, it's so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Let me give you a little bit of pause. Because what Jesus is saying is, this man was born blind and has been blind to this day so that God could make a point. That's a lot of suffering to make one point. Couldn't you do something cool like make him blind and then make him see in a matter of ten minutes? would be perhaps just as impressive and maybe not require the man to suffer his whole life to make this one point. Jesus comes saying that he brings truth. That night is coming, his death and absence from the world, but as long as he is present, he is in the world, he is the light of this world. And he echoes the prologue, which we looked at the beginning in chapter 1 of John, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus comes shining lights on this misunderstanding, on this inability to see who God is and understand His work in the world. And we see, as a result of it, a clash between light and darkness. You have to understand that the darkness in this passage is facilitated by, it is embraced by, it is continually put forward by who? The religious leaders. This isn't the darkness that's perpetrated by the gross sinners in the quarter of Jerusalem during this day. It's it's that which is facilitated by those who lead the people supposedly in truth and righteousness and loving God. Inside darkness that Jesus comes to upend. And so, uh, as the man is healed, it, it creates a serious disagreement amongst the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees say, well, how could Jesus do something like this unless he was actually a man sent by God? And other Pharisees say, this guy's doing work on the Sabbath. Now, there's nothing in the law that for, prohibits healing on the Sabbath, but they construe it as work and say, he's not observing the law. He could have just as healed yesterday or tomorrow as today, and so he can't be from God. He's he's a poser. He's not real. And so as the disagreement unfolds, and as the poor, poor blind man's parents are scared to death and unwilling to enter the conversation, the blind man gets brought back in, and it's this, it's at this point that we enter the second point this morning and have to understand uh, that there's a disagreement, there's actually a battle between light and darkness, and we have to understand who actually sees. That's the debate at hand. Who sees? Is it the Pharisees that see or is it the blind man who's been given sight? It'll come to two different 
conclusions. Look at verse 24. The religious leaders have no problem declaring that Jesus, God incarnate, God standing in their very midst, is a sinner. Their cards are on the table. We know that this man is a sinner. In verse 25, the blind man who's now healed pushes back. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Interestingly, the blind man doesn't speak from any place of knowledge. Not like, well, I'd like you to turn with me to the law, and we can debate this point. It's like, I don't know what you all are talking about, but this I know. I see. And to this day, I've been blind. In verse 29, the religious leaders return to the law. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he has come from. Again, relying on tradition, verse 33, the man making his argument ongoingly says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And there was, after a nice little jab with, do you want to become his disciples too? Uh, they uh, revile him and declare in verse 34, that he was born in utter sin. We have here an actually somewhat difficult, but incredibly challenging and um, enticing passage of Scripture in that we see this battle going on, and the religious leaders will refer to the way that they understand tradition and the law and how they define orthodoxy, and the blind man who's been made to see can only refer to what he's experienced. I don't know. You guys, I can't compete with you in this area of law and tradition, but this is what I know. I've tasted the finger of God. He's healed me, and I can see, and that's something that you're really not going to argue me out of. To realize that, uh, again, in this darkness, sometimes our religious tradition, if we're not careful, can be can be co-opted to facilitate darkness, to not really let us be able to see and embrace the experience of God. And I want to tread somewhat carefully, but, um, you know, sometimes uh, if you've been around the Presbyterian world, we are referred to as the frozen chosen. And sometimes that name is not without due reason. We can be a little frozen and a little chosen. And sometimes in that theology, we uh, we... We celebrate being cerebral, and at expense of that, we, we, we are less serious, and we pine less for an experience of God. And you see the two coming to heads here, that the religious leaders are utterly confident in their cerebral command of, command of the law of God. They think they've got their answers, answers that lead them to declare Jesus as a sinner. And the man argues from his experience, no, God has met me. He's healed me, and I... You know, he's not making that declaration, but he's siding with Jesus in the midst of what's going on in this contention. It reminded me there was a, a discussion in a classroom once, um, and just as an example to help us think through some of the implications of how we might engage in this. A professor in the, in, of theology in seminary was making the point that he strongly believed that women should never be in leadership in the church. He thought this was a clear New Testament teaching and that there doesn't need to be any exceptions because it's it's revealed to be clear. And uh, it was really a breathtaking moment because a, a Chinese woman in the class raised her hand. And she said, after the Cultural Revolution in China, there were no men. Should we have waited a generation 
and lost the dim light that was left of Christianity culturally, or, as happened, should the women have stepped up and led the church so that the church was actually preserved for today. And, uh, boy, you want to see a professor dance. Right? <laughs> Having committed so seriously to this, he realized that, hmm, so may, you know, maybe there are situations that are difficult to understand in how God works in history in the context of which he, uh, at different places, that this really pat answer doesn't necessarily fit or work and needs to be rethought just in terms of that context. Again, there are ways in which sometimes we build an edifice of tradition and that tradition is important and helps us to establish what right thinking is, but sometimes that edifice Boy, if we allow it to trump an actual experience of God in ways that would allow us, cause us to rely on the tradition more than the experience of God, boy, that puts us in a place that is awkward in John 9. In some ways, it's a, it's a profound work of the enemy as well. One of my favorite, maybe my favorite part of the screw tape letters is uh, it happens about midway through. And if you're not familiar with the Screwtape Letters, it's a, it's a book by C.S. Lewis that he wrote, you have a senior demon giving advice to a lesser demon to influence a human who has become a Christian to walk away or, or not grow in his faith. And so he's writing these letters, and at one point uh, he writes to the lesser demon, and you have to remember um, that the enemy, from their perspective, is God. So the other person, the human, is thinking about humility, and this is what uh, the demon, the senior demon writes. You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Some talents I gather he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are, in fact, less valuable than he believes, but that is not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion of some quality other than truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could deign the best, design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best, and rejoice in the fact, without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it, that he would be if it had been done by another. What's Lewis saying? It's a tough quote to just take in in the midst of a sermon. The man has begun to become interested and think about the virtues that he should possess as a Christian, and humility is one of those virtues. This demon says this is actually an opportunity. You don't want to steer him away from embracing humility, but you want him to embrace humility in a certain way so that he actually misses the heart of humility and simply becomes more self-reflective and focused on himself. And so make him think that humility, like most of culture is saying, one of the, the skills of the demon world has been to, to make culture at large think that humility is thinking, oh, I'm really not as smart as I think I am. Or for a woman, I'm really not as pretty as I think that I am. And that's humility. But in reality, you find yourself always in a place of thinking of yourself. Am I being humble? I don't know. Right? I need to think less of myself. Am I thinking less of myself? 
And he said, the demon says, that's a great thing because that's not humility at all. Real humility is self-forgetfulness. You're not spending your time turning your wheels thinking about yourself or thinking even if you possess virtues or how great those virtues are. Real humility is self-forgetfulness to think about God and neighbor above self. But by embracing a version of the virtue, one can be distracted from actually pursuing the true virtue. Brilliant, right? The religious leaders have come to a place in John 9 where they embrace a version of God's revelation. That's what they're holding to, and that's what they're defining their righteousness by, rather than the real thing. The blind man tastes the real thing and understands God's revelation in Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, trumps their that understanding of revelation. And we see the ways in which, whether it be thinking about the church in China or thinking about a virtue like humility, we also run the risk and can be tempted by the enemy to think of versions of our faith and tradition that aren't actually confronted by and continually oriented by the experience of God, God's presence in Christ and in us. And it leads really to nothing but a dead faith that is separate from the life. It leads to a very dark place. So what does it mean to be living in the light, to actually receive sight from Christ and to live in that? Do you notice that in the course of our passage, you might think when we talk about light and darkness and seeing and blindness, that the distinction between those in the passages, those who see and those who don't see, but that's not really the distinction as we come to the end of chapter 9. It's really everyone is blind. The difference is those who recognize that they are blind and come to Jesus to see, recognize that he's the only one who brings sight. You see, the Pharisees at the end think that they see, and because they think they see, their guilt is still in them. And so as Jesus comes into the world and shatters the darkness and reveals the, the, the apex of God's revelation... What does it mean to respond to that light and to live in it? Isn't it remarkable that the blind man who has been healed identifies with Jesus without knowing who he is, without knowing who he claims to be, simply by virtue of having tasted his healing. He chooses to follow him to be persecuted and to be put out of the synagogue before the conversation in which Jesus actually reveals who he is and what he brings to the man. It reminds us that there is no faith without obedience. We like to talk and think about what we believe. And here we see a man who has decided to follow Jesus even before Jesus completely reveals who he is, before he understands everything that has occurred, that he will identify with Jesus for the sight that he has received and be put out of the synagogue, which for which he might as well move to a different town. It's the core, it's the center of their social structure that he's been exiled from as a result of of believing in Jesus. Obedience is something that comes along that uh, must be found with faith. If, If we talk about coming to the light, you don't know what the light is unless that manifests in some way of actually deciding I'm going to be obedient to Jesus and identify with him at cost to myself simply because that is the right thing to do and he is who he says he is. There's uh, there's a village in 
in Holland that's been dubbed uh, uh, it's been dubbed dementia land by uh, CNN. What it is is this: there was a woman in Holland who uh, who worked in the uh, care for adults, you know, cared for aging adults who were who had different issues, and she was very disappointed with the care that was offered uh, by the country. And so for decades, she thought about what she would do if she could, how she would improve care, and eventually raised the money and pitched this idea. And uh, what she developed was basically uh, the Truman Show. Which, If you saw the Truman Show, uh, the Truman Show was a movie that was based on an artificial reality that had been construed to obse- for the life of one man. There are 152 residents in Dementia Land, and it's a 10-football field area that has one entrance in and out and is a, a, a totally constructed reality. It looks like a, a, a village in which there are buildings. All the healthcare workers wear costumes that fit the various roles in the village. And everyone in the village either has Alzheimer's or advanced dementia. So everyone lives in this utterly artificial reality, not knowing what's going on. And Actually, it's a great thing. Every signifier of the quality of care and the quality of health goes up for the people who live in this place. It's not a bad way to go out if you're dealing with that sort of thing. The point of relaying that story to you is this, that you are born into dementia land. You live in dementia land. Sin has utterly broken and corrupted everything around us, often including some of our religious expressions. And in terms of there being one entrance in and out, there is one revelation of God that breaks through and brings light into that darkness, and it is Jesus himself. Do you think that you see? Friends, if you think that you see in ways that are different or that are not completely in line with the revelation of God in Christ, then your sight is an illusion. You think you see, but you don't. And in that, your guilt increases just like that of the Pharisees. And understand, coming to Jesus and growing in Him is an increasing embracing of being blind. Of realizing that you are far more blind and live in a far more dark place than you had ever dared admit because it's so scary to actually admit that. But once you admit that and you recognize that there's one person who sees and there's one person that rescues, then you run to him. You cling to him. And what he says, you do. Because you know that he is the light of the world. So we come to the table this morning. Do you want to see? Do you want to be liberated and to experience more of Christ and less of darkness? Then run to Him and cling to Him. But in that also say, yes, I will obey and I will follow you despite what that might cost me. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for the truth that is revealed in Jesus Christ. We recognize that where would we be without the revelation that is Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, we praise You this morning that You were willing to become man. And as we look upon You, we have seen the Father, for You are one.
And we pray that you would help us to be faithful. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which not only do we exist in darkness, not only do we love the darkness, but often we say the darkness is light. We pray that in admitting our blindness and admitting our darkness, you would lead us to safety and that we would cling to you. We pray that you would remove our cobwebs, that you would chase away the darkness and the shadows, and that as we come to taste you, you would lead us all the more in the light. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.